Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Off the Charts Football Podcast presented by Fantasy Insiders. I'm Scott Spratt from Sports Info Solutions, joined as always by Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders. We're three weeks into the season, Aaron. Um, There's quite a few things that have surprised me so far this year, and we'll be getting into many of them during the show today. Um, But the Cardinals being the best team in football, it seems like something that I might need to start getting used to. You've had some really interesting things to say about the Cardinals on footballoutsiders.com. They're the number one team in DVOA right now. And it's actually interesting that the last two weeks has been the first two weeks in their franchise and DVOA history that they've been the number one team in DVOA for a week in football. So it seems like they're playing better than they ever have before, and they're well ahead of the pack um, in terms of DVOA in football this year. Are the Cardinals really this good? Yeah, it's funny. You know, we probably have to go back to the 70s. We would have to do our ratings back into the 70s to find another time when Arizona was number one. That's how bad they were for so many years. If you think about it, uh, all you have to do is have a really good week one once to be number one <laughs> after week one, right? <laughs> sure, of I course. Mean, not to be a good team. You just have to have a really good week one in order to be number one after one week. But yeah, Arizona had never done it until week two of this year. They had never been number one going all the way back to 1989. And it's this is a really hard team to kind of figure out for a couple of reasons. One is that... You know, you always have to balance what we've learned through three games with what we knew going into the season. And we knew going into the season that Arizona was not as good as its record last year. I know people want to keep coming up with reasons why that's not the case, but that's truly the case. Arizona last year was not as good as its record. It's less an issue of close games and more an issue of just sort of looking at the play by play and what the orders of the plays are. You know, that if you, that they did a lot of things that were they, they didn't do things great, but it just, it happened to work at certain times. And that stuff is not normally in the long term going to be predictive. Uh, and yet here they are this year, a completely different team. I mean, last year they were beating teams, not necessarily by three points, but not by like 30. So this year they're going out and destroying people. But then complicating that further is the fact that the three teams they've beaten might be the three worst teams in football so far this year, based solely at looking at what they've done when not playing Arizona. It's true. I mean, the Saints, the Bears, and the 49ers are currently 29th, 32nd and 31st in DVOA, respectively. And I think the important point there is, while there may be a chicken and egg situation where these teams are getting beat by the Cardinals and making them look bad, they haven't exactly lit it up against other uh, their other opponents. And we'll actually be talking about the Bears specifically in a little bit. But I, you also mentioned that the Cardinals, they're not just beating these bad teams, they're absolutely smashing them. So far this season, the Cardinals have outscored their opponents by 77 points, The closest team to them is the Patriots at 49 points. Then it descends pretty quickly to Buffalo at 32, Cincinnati 29, Green Bay 28. Arizona is really out there on an island right now. And, you know, one thing that is interesting from my perspective is that the Cardinals have been so well balanced. They're actually top five in offense, defense, and special teams in DVOA. And I wanted to ask you just how rare a feat that actually is. Yeah, it's tremendously rare, it turns out. I thought that it was more common. But what's more common is to be top 10 in all three phases of the game, not top five. If we go back through uh, 1989, there are only seven other teams that after week three were in the top five in all three phases of the game. 
I'll go backwards in chronological order. The 2013 Seahawks, the 2007 Steelers, the 2001 San Diego Chargers, the 96 Packers, the 92 Bills, the 91 Redskins, and the 1990 Chicago Bears. Now, here's the thing about that group of teams. That is not an all-time greats list. There are three teams on that list that are all-time great teams, the, the Seahawks, the Packers, and 91 Washington. Uh, 92 Buffalo and 1990 Chicago and 19, uh, 2007 Pittsburgh were all 10-6, uh, and 11-5 and five type teams that were very good teams but not great. And uh, the 2001 Chargers completely collapsed in the second half of the season and finished 5-11. and 11. Wow. So there are no guarantees, but certainly Arizona is in a very, uh, very rare place as far as being so good in all three phases of the game after three weeks with the asterisk, of course, that we have not started including the opponent adjustments yet. Right. I think that's going to be really interesting to see. And I think that's taking place after the week four games. Isn't that true? That's when we start with opponent adjustments. Okay. Yes, we start at 40% strength after four weeks, and then it gradually goes up until after 10 weeks, our numbers will have full opponent adjustments. So that'll be really fascinating to see. But even comparing it to the other list, maybe they're not the all-time great teams, but it, it sure seems like a good list to be in the company of just to believe that the Cardinals are going to be one of the better teams in the league. Um, you know, with, with the fact that they're one of the top special teams units, I've actually I noticed that they've returned a lot of interceptions and kickoffs for touchdowns this year. I think four, in fact, which is the most in football. So I was thinking, you know, maybe this is just a little bit of, of, of luck in that respect. But even that isn't true, because if you take away those four touchdowns, they'd still be tied with the Patriots in terms of outscoring their opponents this year. So. Right, and the, and the thing about the return touchdowns, particularly the interception return touchdowns, is, okay, let's take those points away, right? That those, let's imagine Arizona didn't score those points. That doesn't take away the opportunity, right? If, yeah. if uh, Tyron Matthew gets tackled when he picks off Colin Kaepernick, that means Arizona gets the ball at the 20 or so. That means there's going to be four, four and a half expected points, at least three probably. So it's not like those points represent points that wouldn't exist otherwise. It's very likely that, you know, uh, th- there's no consistent sort of sort of a predictive power to the length of a return mm-hmm. from an interception. This is something that has been in DVOA for years and that ESPN incorporated into their QBR rating this year as well, which is that you judge an interception based on what the average return is given the length of the interception and the location on the field. The quarterback throwing the pick doesn't necessarily have an impact on how long, you know, how agile the return man is and how many tackles he can break on his way back. But what you know is that when you throw a pick in your own end of the field, even if that doesn't get returned for a pick six like it did twice for Arizona against San Francisco, it still would set up Arizona's offense in a really good position. So maybe if, you know, maybe they've been lucky to have those return touchdowns and that's given them 14 points, but where otherwise they would have had like 11 sure. or yeah, of course. six. You know, they still would have had points. Yeah, it's just really difficult to poke holes in the team right now. They just seem really good. And, you know, the fact that they're so extreme on one end of DVOA is interesting in a bridge to the next point of conversation, which is that on the other end of the DVOA spectrum, there's a team that has been much worse than every other team so far. And it's actually one of the teams the Cardinals have beaten this year, and that's the Chicago Bears. 
Uh, I mean, they're just far and away the worst DVOA team. And even though it's just three weeks into the season, we're seeing them already make moves that look like a team that's looking to rebuild. They traded Jaron Allen to the Panthers. They traded John Bostic to the Patriots. I mean, it looks like the, the Bears are ready to blow this thing up. And to me, that becomes really interesting because there's a bunch of other players that might be on the move here. Um, let's start with Matt Forte, who is one year away from becoming an unrestricted free agent and one year away from hitting that magic age of 30 years old that many expect to lead to the decline in running back production, especially for a player like Forte, who's had so many carries throughout his career. Aaron, just based on what we've seen so far, who's competitive and who might have holes at the position, are there teams that you could imagine Forte being a fit for, for a potential trade? And are there any other potential hurdles um, to, to making that happen? Well, first of all, just to go back a little bit on the idea of Chicago as the anti-Arizona, I just want to point out, first of all, that where Arizona is top five in all three phases of the game, Chicago is bottom five in all three phases of the game. Great. And where Arizona, there's a little bit of a question about how good they've been, even though they've been dominating, because the teams they've played are all really bad teams. With Chicago, it's the opposite. The teams that have walloped them are teams that we generally think of as really generally good teams otherwise, right? I mean, Arizona, yeah. Arizona's been really good Seattle, in, Seattle, in their right? other two games. Green Bay is really good. And we all think Seattle is better than they looked in the first two games of the season, right? I do, for sure. Okay. As for Matt Forte, uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I'm generally not a believer in spending a lot of money on a running back. So I also don't believe in trading a lot of value for a running back in the middle of the season, no matter how good Matt Forte's skill set is. And I think you look at how you know what he can do, you probably would want a team that needs, they want you know a workhorse, a guy who's going to be their main guy, but also a guy who's going to be really active in the passing game. Mm-hmm. So the first team that came to my mind was Dallas. Oh, interesting. Because Brandon Whedon loves his checkdowns, 10 to 10 to Lance Dunbar last week, but not a lot of those were successful plays. And that checkdown to Matt Forte on third and 10 is a lot more likely to go for a first down than the checkdown to Lance Dunbar. Well, like when it was, as soon as you said it, it seemed like a shocking reversal for me because the Cowboys obviously had the chance to bring back DeMarco Murray in the offseason and chose not to a decision that I think the two of us would think is smart because of our general opinions about the the value of the running back position. But this isn't that same Dallas team. I mean, you're talking about trying to just stay alive while you you miss Roma for half the season. So all of a sudden, that does make a lot more sense to me. Right. And what makes it, I think, make sense is Forte, the receiving back. Forte as a running back, right? Talented. But how much more talented is he is 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 he than getting by on the cheap with Randall and McFadden I'm not sure but as a receiving back you've got not only Dunbar's receiving value but much a much better receiver than Dunbar mixed with a better running back than Randall and McFadden and you still keep two of those three guys or all three of them to back him up Uh, the question is what you'd have to give up and I don't know if that's worth it for them but I think that is the first place that makes sense. The second might be the Jets. That's another team that has a lot of running backs, but no clear number one guy. Uh, Ivory is kind of the number one, but he's got some injury issues right now. And it's another team that I think could use a running back who excels in the passing game because with Ryan Fitzpatrick, you've got another 
guy who likes dumping off, and you've got a division where you're going to have to face strong defensive lines where there's going to be pass pressure from either Rex Ryan's blitzes or, uh, you know, whatever, my, you know, as bad as the Miami defense has been, the defensive line is still the best part of that defense. And having a great running back to dump to who can get lots of extra yards after the catch would be really valuable. Yeah, the two teams that came to mind for me were the Jets and the Colts, who both have I think quality runners, but neither of whom is a strong pass casting option, at least at this point in their careers, which is why I saw Forte as a fit. But it also then seems a little hard to potentially justify if you're bringing Forte in to be part of a committee. But maybe he's so good that it, it doesn't matter. That just it makes Ivory the backup or or makes Score the backup. Um, to me, those teams would would make some sense, but it would all be about the return, like you said. But the fact that the Bears were willing to trade away Allen, for instance, for a sixth round conditional pick. Uh, I think maybe the team is realizing that anything they can get that would be something that would be valuable to them in a few years is worth taking if that's what it takes to get these deals done. So Now, what's interesting is Alshon Jeffrey is also on the last year of his rookie deal. And when he gets healthy again, if they don't feel they're going to re-sign him, that is another player. And as far as I can, you know, if I was the general manager of the National Football League, there's no question Alshon Jeffrey is probably the most valuable player on the Chicago Bears to get in trade because wide receiver, uh, you know, a big time wide receiver like that usually has more impact than a big time running back, especially if you put him on a team that already has a big time wide receiver and now you have two of them and, uh, you know, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. You know he's really good. Passing game is more important than the running game, which is why I kept saying, you know, Forte's value is even more as a receiver than it is as a, as a runner. Jeffrey, if Jeffrey were on the block, I don't even think we need to start talking about teams that might need him. He would help pretty much almost any playoff contender in the league. It's hard to think of a playoff contender that couldn't use him, that was so deep at the wide receiver position that Alshon Jeffrey would not be an upgrade in one of their top three spots. And as great as Jeffrey is, it does seem like a place the Bears could potentially afford to make a move beyond just the fact that that Jeffrey is going to start costing as much as he is good starting next season. The team drafted Kevin White with an early pick, and although he's been injured and hasn't been able to play this year, that's another big athletic type of receiver that could potentially become a number one receiver down the line. And if this team's rebuilding, maybe it makes sense to, to roll with White as the number one guy there and get probably quite a bit of value back for, for Jeffrey to use elsewhere on the roster. I mean, here's two suggestions from the division that we love and we keep saying we're going to talk more about. Alshon Jeffrey to the Atlanta Falcons oh my gosh. with Roddy White moved into the slot as more of an occasional guy. Imagine uh, if you have to cover Julio Jones with two guys and Alshon Jeffries in single coverage on the other side. Uh, now you're just trying to upset me, Aaron. <laughs> or Alshon Jeffrey to the Carolina Panthers. That, that's more intriguing. Uh, Deanne Fahey broke down in our film room column on Football Outsiders this week just how much there is just no offense around Cam Newton, <laughs> and he is doing it all on his lonesome. And imagine that is Alshon Jeffrey is a more experienced Better, I mean, better because he's more experienced. As a rookie, he was as good as Kelvin Benjamin was. But he's a more experienced version of the guy that got hurt in the preseason for Carolina. It's exactly what Carolina needs is Alshon Jeffrey. 
Yeah, I actually, I read that, that film study of, of Newton. It was a, a tremendous article, one of my favorites this year. And it just, it demonstrated how many good throws Newton was making that weren't necessarily dropped, but weren't turning into positive plays because of, you know, the receivers just don't have it. And the thing that makes so much sense about Jeffrey on a team like the Panthers is Newton's biggest miss has always been the overthrow. And so I think that's kind of why the Panthers have been trying to get the Benjamins and Funches players that are just so tall. It really helps take away his biggest problem. So, you know, money aside, the, the fit seems really strong to me. Um, right. I'll admit I don't know what any of these teams' cap situations are, so I don't know which of these teams might be capped out mm-hmm. and unable to take on Jeffrey's salary in midseason, but I can't imagine Jeffrey's salary is that large since this is his rookie contract that he's playing out. Right. It's, you know, I, I, it would be a huge addition to either of those NFC South teams who find themselves, look, in a position where they're 65, 70, 80 percent likely to make the playoffs at this point. Yeah, and a situation that may not persist in the future years as the schedules get more difficult as they rotate. I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about Jay Cutler, but not too much, because I think we both agree that it's unlikely that another team is going to be willing to trade for him. Um, But it is worth mentioning for the Bears that, in a sense, they may be stuck with him for another season. He's got $10 million guaranteed in 2016 that's, that's already come to pass, so there's not much they can do to get out of that. Meanwhile, they'll be hit with a pretty hefty cap number next year because of his presence. So I'm not really sure what they can do unless they can talk a team into bringing in Cutler as if he was on a one-and-a-half-year remaining on his contract deal. It just seems so unlikely to me, Aaron. Do you, can you imagine a team taking, taking Cutler on? No, because you don't want to put him in your locker room. Right. Jay, Jay Cutler is one of the reasons why I, I joke sometimes that if I understood what was going on in these guys' heads, I would call my site football psychologists instead of football <laughs> outsiders. There's no question the guy's got talent, and his uh, performance tends to be underrated. People think he's some kind of horrible quarterback. He is an average to slightly above-average quarterback who just happens to be somewhat inconsistent and throws maybe an above-average number of interceptions, but not to a crazy extent, right? Jay Cutler's performance on the field is way better than people seem to realize, but there's no doubt that all of his teammates seem to hate the guy. Like, I don't know why that is, and I'm not in the locker room, but when I've talked to NFL reporters, you know, one of the advantages of the fact that I do go to games now and sit in the press box, usually in New England, sometimes elsewhere, is that I take advantage of the ability to talk to these reporters who are in locker rooms where I am not. And they tell me that the stuff about Cutler is real. His teammates don't like the guy. So what team wants to bring on an overpaid average, you know, I mean, average quarterback is something that some teams need, but still, he's not, you know, he's not Matt Ryan, uh, who nobody likes. Who's bringing that on? Nobody's bringing that on. I think I agree. So let's move on to some happier topics. And I'm kind of surprised to myself for saying this, but the Oakland Raiders are a really interesting, surprisingly good team this season. Yes, let's move on. Let's move on to quarterbacks who we thought were below average, but might be above average and who people seem to like. And that's it. The, the Raiders' 2-1 and one start to the season, to me, it's all about Derek Carr. The question is, is he making that year-two leap that, that I think we love to think about as, as a potential for quarterbacks? In his statistics, you can definitely see it. Even though his, his sort of surface statistics last year were, were pretty solid, especially his touchdown-interception ratio, he's really incle- increased his accuracy, completion percentage up from 58% last year to 63% this year, only thrown one interception so far this year. So I, I wanted to ask you, Aaron, what do some of the, the deeper stats like DYAR say? 
Yeah, so he's been, so far this year, he is seventh in DYAR and sixth in DVOA because, you know, he, he missed a little bit of one of the games for Matt McLoyne. So uh, he does a little bit better in the value per play stat than in the total value. Right. Uh, last year, that, that uh, touchdown to interception ratio was heavily about the red zone. And in particular, it was about really close. Like he was really amazing, had amazing luck when it came to passes like inside the five. This year, he's still three. Three of his five touchdowns are, um, three of his five touchdowns are in the red zone, but only one of those is inside the five. And there's the big sixty-eight yarder to Amari Cooper, and that brings up, I think, what's really going on with with Carr a lot is the better receivers. C- Cooper is just a huge add for him. So you know, Carr is getting the ball downfield better, but not more often. He's still only thirteen percent or something of his passes have gone. 16 or more yards in the air, which is not different from last year. Right. So he, he's not passing it downfield more, but what he's getting from those passes downfield is is much more. Uh, last year, right? So uh, last year, uh, David Carr, on David Carr passes, the Raiders averaged 4.2 yards after the catch. And what was really remarkable was they only averaged 2.5 yards after the catch on those mid-range passes that went 6 to, fi- uh, six to 15 yards to the air. This year, the Raiders are averaging 6.8 yards after the catch on car passes. And on those mid-range passes, that's gone from 2.5 last year to 7.4 this year. Well, that's huge. And a lot of that is Amari Cooper, but not only. Michael Crabtree is much more of a yards-after-catch possession receiver than Cooper is. He doesn't have the speed of Cooper, but he's bringing it in a way that the Raiders receivers weren't last year. And then this guy Roberts, the undrafted uh, rookie, is doing reasonable as well. And he's got some nice catches. So I think with Carr, a lot of it has been improvement just in the receiving core. You know, I'm still skeptical about Derek Carr in the long run, but there's no question he's been better this year. Uh, he's delivering the ball better, but they're also doing much more with it when he gets it to so, yeah, it's great to see the Raiders finally kind of get out of the funk they've been in for several seasons. The real problem with this team is probably going to be on the defensive side of things, though. They're 28th in DVOA, so very near the bottom of the league there. And to me, I'm not sure how many reasons there are for optimism of a turnaround there. If I had to pick one, it would be Khalil Mack, who is obviously a very good pass rusher. But his four sacks and pressure so far this year don't put him on the same level as the breakout stars like Aaron Donald or like J.J. Watt. So I'm not sure he's like a, a single-handed, game-changing type of pass rusher the way a few of these other fortunate teams have. But do you see anything on the defensive side that maybe they can make improvements on? Yeah, see, it's interesting because I will say this is one where my subjective opinions and also knowledge, you know, what we knew going into the season, right? So what we knew going into the season and my subjective feelings were down on Derek Carr. So I am a little hesitant to say that his success in the first three weeks shows that he's truly turned a huge corner as opposed to just having better receivers. Right. On the other hand, what we knew going into the season was that Oakland has a lot of good young defensive talent. We projected their defense to improve. We projected their defense to actually be roughly average, which would be an improvement over past years. And so I think that the struggles of the first two weeks are going to be temporary. Um, they had a strong negative defensive DVOA in week three. 
So it's just two bad weeks of defense. The third week was good. Right. And I do think things are going to get better as the year goes along. There is a lot of good young talent here. I am a big believer in Mac. It may not be happening so far for him, but everybody knows the guy is kind of a transcendent talent. For sure. Uh, like TJ Carey, uh, Mario Edwards is a good young, you know, they've built with a lot of talent on that side of the ball. And I think that their defense will get better. I do not think that Oakland is going to be 28th in defense by the end of the year. I, they're not going to be a top 10 defense. But I think that when you look at the long run for that team, there, there's a lot of reason to believe in that defense in the long term. Well, I mean, that's great even for this season, because even if they can become a middle-of-the-pack defense, um, if any of the talent on offense is, is for real, I mean, that makes them a competitive team. They're, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other teams that we thought might be good that – are kind of falling back in the AFC. So I feel like there are potentially playoff spots available. Yeah, I have a really hard time thinking of Oakland as playoff team, but I do not have a hard time thinking of Oakland as next year's Minnesota, essentially. The 7-9 and nine team that we all go into next year going, that's the team on the rise, that's the team on the rise, look at all the young talent, that's the team on the rise. Oakland may have finally gotten things together in the front office and look like they're that team. Well, that's great for Oakland. At least in the short term, I think their biggest obstacle is going to be the the team that's always been the juggernaut out in the, out west, which is the Denver Broncos. And the Broncos, despite a lot of narrative about Peyton Manning struggles and other potential problems, they're still rolling right along. Uh, they're seventh overall in DVOA this season, so they look like one of the best teams. I think I, I read on your your article on Football Outsiders, Aaron, that they're the fourth likeliest team to win the Super Bowl this season. So maybe not as great as they've always been that's still right at the top of things but what really stands out to me is interesting with this team is how different their defense and offense has been so far this season I think we expect with the Peyton Manning offense that that's going to carry his teams but the opposite has been the case for Denver so far this year they are first in defensive DVOA and 31st in offensive DVOA let's start on the offensive side Aaron I know you mentioned after the first week that that Peyton really didn't look like he was the same player physically is that been sort of what you've been seeing the, the last two weeks as well? And that's something that you think is going to be a problem for the rest of his career? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, even in week three, right, that was the big successful game. He only threw four passes that went more than 15 yards through the air. So he's still, there's no deep ball. He, com- he completed more of those passes than he had in the past. But even that big, you know, the big one to Demarius Thomas totally hung up there in the air. Yeah. The thing about Armstrong is, look, Look, I can, I can throw the ball 30 yards downfield. I can throw the ball 30 yards downfield. But my God, it's going to hang in the air like a big rainbow because I have no arm strength, right? Yes. It's not that Peyton Manning can throw the ball 30 yards downfield. It's the strength with which you throw it 30 yards downfield. You know, Aaron Rodgers makes that a, a laser. <laughs> so uh, the arm strength is still a huge problem. And, and the thing about the big comeback week is that Peyton Manning's uh, still had his DVOA for week one. You know, this is without adjust, you know, about, without opponent adjustments at this point. Uh, but was basically zero. So he basically improved to average. Yeah. And the running game still wasn't there. And, you know, one of the worries going into this season was, well, we're going to run more often because that's going to make Peyton fresher when we get to the playoffs. Well, that's not what's happening. They're not running very much. It looks like a Peyton Manning offense, not like a Gary Kubiak offense. So I don't know if that means he's going to be tired out come the end of the year, but they certainly, if the plan was to run more, it is not working. 
Well, no, it's it's not just that they're not running as often. It's just the run has been completely ineffective for the team. Right, and then so then they're getting away from it in the sure. second half of the game. So they're not running as often, even when the game is close. Right, it's not like they're falling way behind, and that's why they're not running as often. I mean, they're not they're having the lead. They're not running as often because it's not working. Which is it's really interesting to me. Um, I'm curious how much of it actually could be related to the passing attack. I mean, if if your defense doesn't have to worry about defending the ball down the field against Peyton, then that can probably change the scheme that you're working with. Um, but I'm and also he, he doesn't see those empty boxes. Yes, you're right. That he would audible to right in the past. Peyton Manning's thing is, if you give him that empty box, he'll audible to the run and take that. You know, that's what the best quarterbacks do. Brady does it too, right? Uh, Rodgers does it too. Yeah. But, uh, but now the, there is not an empty box. So Denver has 63 running back carries so far, which is actually below average, despite the fact that they're 3-0. and oh, And there's no run blocking whatsoever. They are 30th in adjusted line yards. I mean, this is more just based on the observations that I have instead of tangible evidence, but it's just with Kubiak coming in and bringing in the zone run blocking scheme that he's famous for, I've always had this pet theory about the, the that sort of style, which is that we're not really good collectively as analysts at figuring out who is going to fit well in that type of offense. And that's why you see players like Arian Foster, you know, basically become close to undrafted and then become stars in the league is because they find a system that really works really well for their skill set. And maybe maybe we just missed on Foster, but we've seen that in other places too, like Alfred Morris with the Redskins. And I'm curious how much of this is, is it possible that the Broncos just don't have the right personnel to work with this type of running attack? And And I don't know. It'll be interesting to see over the next weeks if they can get this figured out at all. It might just be that they don't have good personnel, period, um, on the offensive line. But it's, it's definitely a problem. Case, right. If that's the case, I don't think it's the backs. I think it's the offensive line. Yeah. And looking at the offensive linemen, I mean, they're not the, the, the one guy who weighs so much that you ask maybe does he fit this blocking style is the guy who's I think everybody would acknowledge is the best offensive lineman on the team, which is Luis Vasquez. So you do not want to stop playing Luis Vasquez just because he's 330 and you want a bunch of guys who are 300 to be running this offense. But Paradis is listed at 306. Mathis is listed at 304. Sam Brilo is listed at 309. So they're maybe not like, you know, for offensive linemen, they're not like minuscule, but they're not, they're on the smaller side. They're guys who theoretically should be able to zone block, except that they haven't spent a lot of time working together. A lot of them are young. There's no continuity. Evan Mathis is a veteran, but he just showed up a few weeks ago. You know, this is where you have a lot of executives now talking to the big national reporters like Mortensen and Schefter about how we're running into a problem with not having enough uh, contact uh, drills in the current CBA because offensive linemen are not getting uh, they're not getting developed when they're also not having time to develop together into a continuous unit and. I don't know why certain teams are having less problem with that. I mean, the Patriots are p- putting two rookies out there every week right now and look fine, but Denver's offensive line is just completely not gel. So, again, yeah, as, as a stat analyst, it's hard to figure out what's the deal here, but it certainly doesn't seem like the issue is that the offensive linemen don't fit a zone blocking scheme. They're just not playing well in the zone blocking scheme. And I can't, I can't for the life of me figure out why you shouldn't be able to zone block out of the pistol, right? I understand that part of the idea is that 
uh, you wanted to have the back behind the quarterback so that there was no sense of whether he was going left or right on the run. But once you've done that, I don't see any reason why having the pistol stops zone blocking from being effective any more than having a standard eye formation. So maybe it'll just gel as the season goes on, like you mentioned, as they gain more experience. But I think the really good news for the Broncos is their defense is just so good that it may allow them to just, you know, roll to the playoffs that way, kind of like, you know, a Carolina Panthers style attack. Um, I mean, what's so good about this defense? I know they're generating pass pressure, but I feel like it's the coverage is just so outstanding with, you know, Chris Harris out there and, and they have a rookie named Roby who's been really good so far this season. Second year guy. He Second was a year, last right. Year. Mm-hmm. He was really good as a rookie and he's really good this year. Absolutely. Yeah, he kind of, I think, comes in on the outside with Harris going to the slot when you have nickel. And uh, they're number one in the league against wide receivers in DVOA so far. Number four against running backs. They have been susceptible to tight ends. Uh, they bring really good pressure. They're fifth in the league in adjusted sack rate. So, and the running, the run defense is ninth in DVOA and they're fifth in stuffs. So they've stuffed opposing opposing running backs, have been stuffed for a loss or no gain 28% of the time, which is fifth in the league. So, so Denver is really doing everything pretty much well on defense, except for covering the tight end. And yeah, they've been the number one defense in the league. Outstanding. And it's crazy to think that Peyton Manning is now essentially like Tyrod Taylor. (laughs) A game manager. Well, you probably couldn't put a better brain in a game-managing quarterback's uh, body. So, you know, maybe this will work out just fine for the Broncos. He didn't go to Harvard. Oh, true enough. He's no Fitzpatrick. Basically like Ryan Fitzpatrick without a beard at this point. Well, great. Uh, Aaron, I think that'll wrap up pretty much all the topics we wanted to hit on today. So I'll encourage you and everyone else to... Check out these week four games. Should be a lot of fun. If you haven't subscribed yet, um, subscribe to the to the Off to the Charts football podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can also check us out on footballoutsiders.com. Also head over to Fantasy Insiders, our sponsor. They're doing putting out great content for both traditional and daily fantasy players. Uh, Aaron, thanks so much for recording this week. I will talk to you next week. Absolutely, and I leave all of our listeners with the mental image of Peyton Manning with Ryan Fitzpatrick's beard. <laughs>